Hello and welcome back to the Wine About podcast. I'm your host, Gabriella. If you are not following me on Instagram, go follow me at the Wine About. Uh, this is episode number two. And if you have been following me on Instagram for a while, you know about my obsession with Beaujolais and the Gamay variety. So I thought it'd be silly not to make it one of my first podcasts. Um, I hope you really enjoyed my previous one on Georgian wines. And if you have the time, please reach out to me on Instagram and I would love any feedback, any thoughts and whatnot. But let's get straight into it. This episode, I'm going to be talking to you about Beaujolais, a wine region in France, and its main variety is Gamay. Gamay was discovered sometime in the 1360s, in the decade after the Black Death. So imagine COVID, but far worse. The Black Death pandemic claimed the lives of close to 200 million people. Now, Gamay comes from a pretty tasty family. It's a crossing between Pinot Noir and the vilified white wine variety Gouet Blanc. Gamay is one of its many crossings and its siblings include famous grapes like Chardonnay, Aligote, Melon de Bourgogne from... Um, Loire Valley and Auxerrois, which is uh, mainly found in Alsace. The Gamay grape was named after the village in which it was discovered, located in the south of Bone. Ironically, Appalachian laws state today that Gamay cannot be produced commercially in the village of Gamay. It's a bit silly, but they're the rules. So after the Black Death pandemic, um, Gamay plantings increased rapidly in Burgundy. Uh, and this was because of the enormous economic advantages. Gamay yields a triple that of Pinot Noir and the crop was way more reliable and ripened a lot earlier. Pinot Noir, if you don't know, is a very difficult grape to grow. Even back then, Burgundy and its red bone wines made from Pinot were highly prized and considered to be some of the finest wines in France. The Duke at the time used these barrels of Burgundian wine as a key tool in his diplomatic arsenal. He'd gift up barrels to kings and popes. But there was a rapid increase of plantings in Gamay and the wine's image was starting to change pretty fast. And according to Duke at the time, which was Philip the Bold, they were not changing for the better. Philip was very fussy about the quality of wine coming out of his kingdom he saw it as a direct reflection of himself. To nip this issue in the butt, in 1395, the Duke banned the Gamay grape from being grown in his kingdom. Poor Gamay. Vine growers in Burgundy weren't really running out to the vineyards and pulling out their vines instantly. They weren't very keen to abandon their new cash crop. And the majority of the vines were pulled out only after Philip the Bold introduced monetary fines. But people loved Gamay so much and they just didn't want to let it disappear. So they made the decision to head south and plant vines outside his kingdom. Contrary to popular belief, although Philip the Bold did ban Gamay from the Cote d'Or, he didn't banish Gamay to Beaujolais. If we can all just remember now that this is happening in 1395. 1395, I mean, and the Gamay grape does not appear to have become Beaujolais' grape of choice until the 17th century. Now, Beaujolais, like many French wine regions, was first cultivated by the Romans. They planted vines along its trade route up the Saon Valley. From the 7th century through to the Middle Ages, viticulture and winemaking was carried out by the Benedictine monks. 
The name Beaujolais comes from the town of Beaujou, which was ruled by the lords of Beaujou until the 15th century. Wine merchants from Beaujolais did not have access to a huge audience. Its wines were sold mostly to markets along the Saône and Rhone River, most notably to the um, French town Lyon. The lucrative Paris market, however, did open up in the 19th century, thanks to the expansion of the French railroad system. The following century is when sales really started to pick up for the region. So it's the 1980s and this is prime time for Beaujolais. It's peak of popularity on a global scale with its Beaujolais Nouveau style. The wine, which is made wholly from Gamay, is fermented for just a few days and released to the public on the third Thursday of November. It was actually officially named Beaujolais Nouveau Day. The wine was best known for its speed to market. It earned winemakers big money. The region had one producer to thank for all of this, and you might be familiar with his wines, George de Boeuf. They're widely available and the white labels are covered with pretty flowers. He turned Beaujolais Nouveau into a world-leading brand. He alone was selling a quarter of a million cases a year of his famous Nouveau. A quarter of a million cases. That's not bottles. He was a clever man and he ensured media were present during the first shipments of Nouveau in November. First in France, then the media in the UK and America. He became close friends with famous chefs of France who in turn would then promote the Nouveau style. He was really a great networker. But... All good things must come to an end. And this style ended up being so popular that in its peak in 1992, I know we're we're heading back now, that's 30 years ago. So 30 years ago, more than 50% of Beaujolais wine was sold as the Nouveau style. That's a crazy amount. So this wasn't entirely great for the region's image. Consumers connected wines of Beaujolais with only the Nouveau style. And I guess we can't really blame them with Nouveau being 50% of production. And this style was slightly sweet, super fruity, simple, thin and light. And as the hype around Beaujolais Nouveau fizzled out, like most things swell in most hypes, producers were left with a shocking amount of unsold wine. And I am talking millions and millions and millions of bottles. The French authorities ordered them to get rid of it through distillation and demanded growers to place a greater emphasis on the production of more complex wines. Gamay that was aged for longer in oak prior to release and focusing more on um, Beaujolais' top tier production, which is their crew wines. I would love to say that, you know, this was the only negative thing that impacted Beaujolais and its image, but it wasn't. There are actually quite a few scandals that are to follow. In the early 2000s, the region took a couple of negative media hits. So firstly, the mastermind behind the Nouveau, George Deboeuf, who I just mentioned previously, he was in big, big trouble. The 2004 vintage was pretty crappy in Beaujolais and he was charged with mixing low-grade wine with better vintages. He blamed it on human error. His production manager actually resigned and took full responsibility for it. The King of Nouveau was fined £30,000 and charged with fraud. Just a couple years later, in 2007, five people were arrested after selling a ridiculous amount of sugar to growers in Beaujolais. They were caught selling 600 tonnes of sugar. 
that's 600,000 kilos. So that amount of sugar is pretty hard to explain. Around 100 growers in Beaujolais were accused of using the sugar for illegal chapitalization in the winemaking. And chapitalization is a winemaking technique where sugar is added to improve or stylistically alter a finished wine. With all these scandals going on, really started to affect Beaujolais' reputation in the wine world and consumer confidence took a big hit. So now you're aware of a bit of history and uh, how Gamay came to be, I want to focus on modern-day Beaujolais, the French appellation that's sandwiched between Burgundy and the Northern Rhone. Beaujolais is actually quite an anomaly in France. This region is almost entirely planted to one single variety, being Gamay. Red wine in Beaujolais accounts for close to 99% of production. There is some rosé made and there's also white wine produced, which is mainly from Chardonnay that is planted in the cool northern part. And actually up until 2024, you can also find Aligote for white wines. I've never seen a Aligote from Beaujolais, but apparently they do exist. The Chardonnay, on the other hand, they are pretty delightful and I've tasted a couple. One in particular that really stood out to me was by the natural wine producer, um, Georges de Combe, and that was pretty impressive. I like to call Beaujolais the gateway red. Now, this style of wine can be very light-bodied, have refreshing acidity, it's quite aromatic too, and it's got lots of red berry fruit going on. It's a wine that you can pop in the fridge and enjoy with a slight chill, And I say it's a gateway red because white wine only drinkers typically aren't used to the tannin in red wine. And as Gamay has little tannin, it's a great way to introduce that red wine texture without completely overpowering the palate with this new sensation. Beaujolais is a pretty large region in France. It's bigger than Burgundy, um, but a little bit, quite a bit smaller than Champagne. Champagne is actually quite a huge wine region. I just looked at the the acreage there was pretty blown away. Anyway, back to Beaujolais. It's large. 18,000 hectares of vines here planted on a 55 kilometer stretch of land. So you have the Seine River to the east, Mont de Beaujolais to the west, and the city of um, Lyon to the south. The climate here is semi-continental and Beaujolais is warmer than its northerly neighbor Burgundy. And the vines here are able to consistently ripen grapes. Summers in Beaujolais are warm and in the winter snow can fall on the foothills of the massive central. Just like in Burgundy, hail can unfortunately be a significant problem and in some years producers can lose up to 80% of their crop, so that's quite devastating. The soils of Beaujolais divide the region into north and south. The town of Villefranche is a close dividing point. So we have the northern half of Beaujolais and this is where all the crew vineyards, which are the best vineyards, are located. Here there is granite and schist soils and they're coarse. These sandy soils are considered to be superior to clay-based soils that are found in the south. The granite and schist are able to retain heat and they help vines reach optimal ripeness. They are also highly permeable and allow for excellent drainage. The southern half. Now this is flatter terrain and these rich soils are made up of sandstone and clay. And Gamay performs differently in both subregions. In the north, where all the Cru Beaujolais wine comes from, the grape produces wines with a bit more structure and depth. And in the south, they tend to be lighter and a bit more fruit forward. 
When you think of vineyards, you typically think of, you know, very straight rows, very neat. You've got poles and the vines kind of trellised along them. Now that's called single gear, um, which is very, very common throughout the wine world, except in Beaujolais. So in Beaujolais, they're mainly bush vines, and this is known in France as gobelet. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the bush vine or gobelet, just give it a quick Google and you'll be able to envision it better. It's also quite popular in the Rhone Valley and for um, old Grenache vines in the Barossa and Old Shiraz. But anyway, I digress, I'm going off topic. The spurs of the vines, they're pushed upwards and they're arranged in a circle. And this is very common in the northern part of Beaujolais. Bush vines require um, a lot of manual labor. You can't machine harvest, you can't machine weed, you can't machine prune. Everything must be done by hand. So in turn, it is quite costly having bush vines. And that is why you'll find a lot of um, newer vineyards, in this, especially in the south of Beaujolais, being planted with that kind of more traditional rose, single gear layout because you can machine harvest and you can machine weed and do everything by machine. So you're saving a lot of money, especially with cost of labor being so expensive these days. Harvest in Beaujolais typically takes place around late September and it's almost completely done by hand rather than using machines. And this is because of two reasons. So reason number one, you have to hand harvest bush vines, which I mentioned just previously. And reason number two, the winemaking style of Beaujolais uses carbonic maceration. And this is a winemaking method that uses whole bunches of grape clusters and you cannot machine harvest whole bunch. If you've ever seen a um, or seen a video of a uh, machine going through a vineyard and harvesting grapes, it just it knocks the vines completely. Grapes going everywhere. You're not getting these perfect bunches. I just want to thank you for listening to my podcast. Um, and if you could please give me a rating in iTunes, I would greatly appreciate that. Or send me a message in my DMs at the Wine About on Instagram and let me know your thoughts. Thank you. Okay, back to business. Let's get serious again. We're going to go through the appellations of Beaujolais. So it's actually fairly simple, like considering we're dealing with French wine. There are 12 AOCs and the appellation ranking in Beaujolais is pretty straightforward. Um, And also to make it even more simple, 98% of the region is planted to one variety, Gamay. I think this might be one of the easiest regions to wrap your head around because of the simplicity. So the Appalachians were originally established in 1936, with additional crews being promoted in 1938, 1946, and most recently in 1988, and that's Renier. So the wines of Beaujolais are divided into three classifications. You have Beaujolais, Beaujolais Village, and Beaujolais Cru. And there are 10 crews in Beaujolais and each crew has its own individual AOC. About half of all Beaujolais wine is sold under the basic Beaujolais AOC designation. It is the largest appellation. It covers dozens of villages. A majority of Beaujolais AOC wine is coming from the southern part. Uh, Under this appellation, Beaujolais AOC, a large percentage of the wine is sold as Beaujolais Nouveau. So Beaujolais Nouveau isn't its own appellation. It can be appended to Beaujolais AOC or Beaujolais Village, but not to crew wines. So moving up the pyramid, we have Beaujolais Village AOC and Beaujolais Village covers 38 villages in northern Beaujolais. 
and there's a bit of hilly terrain and granite soil and it's just considered to be better growing conditions for the Gamay variety. Red, white and rosé wine can be made. So red wines are typically made using semi-carbonic maceration and are juicy, light embodied with um, red fruits and spice. Now there are a few other grapes that aren't really of huge importance but I'll briefly mention them. So there's Chardonnay, Aligote, Melon de Bourgogne, Pinot Gris and Pinot Noir. But these grapes are not allowed to make up more than 15% of the total vineyard area collectively. Beaujolais Village Blanc is made entirely from Chardonnay and you probably would see a lot more of it around if it wasn't so close to um, Macon Village, AOC, which is in Burgundy. These two appellations, they actually overlap. So wines are typically then decided to be made under the Burgundian AOC because it's far more familiar to consumers and it's just a lot easier to sell. Um, The Chardonnay is made here because it is so close to Burgundy, so you just have those perfect limestone soils. Beaujolais Village accounts for about 25% of total annual output, majority of course being red wine. But if you've been listening, I bet you already knew that. At the very top of the pyramid, you have Cru Beaujolais. So the term crew in Beaujolais refers to the entire wine producing area rather than an individual vineyard like in Burgundy and Alsace. There are 10 crews all located in the north and around the foothills of the Beaujolais mountains. Now it's a little bit tricky but I promise you this is as tricky as it gets in Beaujolais. You'll have to know the names of the crews because the word Beaujolais isn't usually shown on the label so it would just say the name of the crew as opposed to Beaujolais Cru Morgon. It's just going to say Morgon. Now the wine here is, it's better quality. And how do you make better quality wines? You restrict the yields. So maximum yields are a lot smaller here. They're 48 hectolitres per hectare, um, as opposed to 58 hectolitres per hectare for Beaujolais Village. Now these Cru wines, they're more full-bodied, they're deeper in colour, and they're able to be cellared for a lot longer. The best Cru wines can actually fool some top sommeliers for being Burgundy, especially when these Beaujolais see a bit of age. Each crew has its own unique style, but over the years, I've noticed that the producer makes just as much impact as well. For instance, there's this producer, Angro, and she makes stunning wine out of Burgundy and also more recently in Beaujolais. And her crew Beaujolais wines are made in a similar way to Burgundy and Pinot Noir. So her style of wine from Moulin Vent, which is a crew, includes zero carbonic maceration, the fruit is distemmed, and she lets the wine mature in French oak. Now, if you compare a wine made like that with another Moulin Vent from another producer, and it's made, you know, wholly carbonic, this creates a completely different style of wine, which is why knowing the producer in Beaujolais, especially for the crew wines, is so important. In saying all of that, I am going to try my hardest to give you the best guide possible for working out these crew wines. So I'm going to break it down by body. So the first three wines we're going to talk to you about typically produce the lightest bodied Beaujolais, and they are Bruy, Renier, and Chirouble. Now, Bruy is the largest, and it's the most southern crew, and vines here are planted around the Mont Bruy. Then we have Renier, which is the youngest crew, and it's also the most western. And then we have um, Chirouble, 
And this crew has vineyards at some of the highest altitudes and it's typically noted for its delicate perfume. If you're looking for an entry point into Gamay, maybe you can try one of those wines because they are the lighter styles of Beaujolais Cru. However, maybe you want a little bit more body and these will be able to evolve for a few more years in bottle and they are Cote de Bruy, Fleury and Saint-Amour. So first of the medium-bodied crews is Cote de Bruy, and that is located actually within the Bruy crew, but it's on the steeper slopes of the extinct volcano that it's planted on. Then we have Fleury, one of my favorite crews. It's the middle of Beaujolais here, and it is planted on a fairly large area. There's 900 hectares. So stylistically, it does vary a little bit, and there are close to 200 growers. The last medium-bodied crew is fairly small. It's about third of the size of Fleury, and it is called Saint-Amour. Pretty name. And it's one of the most northerly appellations here. Because it is so northerly, it's close to Burgundy, so you will see some limestone soils as well. Now, Beaujolais with the most body and longest ageing potential come from the following four crews. Chenas, Julianas, Morgon and Moulin Vent. So Chenas is the third crew from the north. It's pretty small. Uh, there's only about 240 hectares and it can actually be quite tricky to find at your local wine store. Then we have Julianas and these wines are noted for their richness and spice. This crew is actually named after Julius Caesar and has a wine history of more than 2,000 years. Next up we have Morgon which is another one of my favourites. And it is the second largest crew, home to the famous south-facing Cote de Pie vineyard. Uh, and if you're a big fan of Jean Follard, which is a natural wine producer, he does a really tasty Cote de Pie wine. Wine produced here has sufficient tannin and fruit to age gracefully for, you know, over 10 years in bottles. So it's pretty special stuff, especially when they've got that age. Next up is Moulin Vent, and it produces the most powerful and long-lived wines of Beaujolais. They're actually closer in style to um, the wines of Cote d'Or, to be honest. Okay, guys, a lesson on Beaujolais without talking about carbonic maceration simply would not make sense. So here in Australia, we love to abbreviate things, and we call it Cab Mac. Carbonic maceration. It's kind of magical. And the aim here is to enhance the fruitiness of the wine, soften those tannins and deepen the color. Carbonic maceration can entirely change a wine. Have you ever smelt a wine and got aromas of bubble gum or banana, maybe vanilla and cinnamon too? It's likely that you're sipping on a wine that's been through carbonic maceration. It's common throughout the region of Beaujolais. However, the crew wines might be made in a more Burgundian fashion with destemming and no carbonic. And some wines can be made using semi-carbonic. Your typical red wine is made from grape juice turning into alcohol and that happens via a yeast fermentation. So the yeast eat the natural sugars and then convert them into alcohol. However, with a carbonic maceration, the fermentation begins inside the berry and it happens from the inside out. And in semi-carbonic, it's a mix of both. And the process I'm going to quickly talk you through now, I know it's quite technical, but I'm going to try and explain semi-carbonic maceration in the simplest way possible. So, Step one, firstly, you're going to need whole clusters. So we need the grape bunches intact for a carbonic maceration. This means mechanical harvesters are a no-go as they destroy the bunches. And the grape bunches are then placed into cement or stainless steel tanks. A lot of bunches are being thrown into these pretty large vessels. So the bottom third of the grapes gets crushed under the weight of gravity, which means the juice begins a normal yeast fermentation with ambient yeast found naturally on the skins. 
Meanwhile, the berries towards the middle and the top, they remain intact. And that's when that intracellular fermentation begins. So the fermentation is happening from the inside out. For Beaujolais Nouveau, the process is completed in as little as four days, which is pretty quick. Other appellations ferment for a little bit longer, like the village and crew wines. And the longer it's allowed to macerate and ferment, the more time it gets to develop extra tannins, color and body. The wine will then undergo a malolactic fermentation to help soften the wine further. The wines of Beaujolais have seen a nice push in this past decade. I love it. I love it when people show Beaujolais a little bit of love. You know, sommeliers love them because they are so easy to pair with an array of foods. You can pair it with poultry, fish, and the natural wine community really embraces Beaujolais. In fact, natural winemaking does have a bit of a stronghold here. So there has been a turn to Cru Beaujolais with a rise of high quality wines coming out of the region. And I want to introduce you to the Gang of Four. And this is the last thing we're going to talk about on the podcast. But I did want to mention the natural winemaking scene because it, it is fairly important in modern day Beaujolais. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce the Gang of Four, a group of four natural winemakers in Beaujolais who are said to have really revolutionised the perception of the region. Their wines are held with high regard in the industry. I know here in Sydney, if you want to get your hands on some Jean Foyard Cote de Pay, you're only getting a few dozen for the wine shop or restaurant you're at. It's very, very competitive. Um, the term Gang of Four was actually given to this group of natural winemakers in the 1980s, and that was by a pretty famous um, legendary US wine importer named Kermit Lynch. Unfortunately, not all four are here with us today, but they are Jean Foyard, Jean-Paul Fevenon, Guy Breton and Marcel Lapierre. These wines have the structure of great burgundy, but lucky for us, they are much more affordable. The Gang of Four probably would not have happened if it wasn't for the godfather of natural wine, Beaujolais-born Jules Chaveau. He studied nature thoroughly and he wanted to know how to work with it rather than against it. The whole natural wine scene in Beaujolais is very important and it could be an entire podcast in itself. So here are just a few facts. How is Jules Chaveau connected to the Gang of Four? Well, when Jules Chaveau's career was coming to an end, he met young Marcel Lapierre, a fellow Beaujolais winemaker. He became Marcel's mentor at the time and Marcel was a decade into the business of making wine after taking over the operation from his father. The group of producers were inspired by the natural winemaking and growing methods of the regional hero, Jules Chaveau. They all wanted to showcase the unique terroir of Beaujolais with little to no intervention, farming organically or biodynamically, using natural yeasts, and limiting the amount of sulfur. Together, they are a force. They help to shine a new spotlight on Beaujolais. They raise the region's profile, and they were also able to show how Beaujolais is more than nouveau, and the grapes here are more than capable of producing wines of power, meaning, wines that are complex and just downright delicious. Well, guys, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the entire podcast. And I hope you have learned something about one of my favorite French regions, Beaujolais. And please leave me a review on iTunes or come hit me up in my DMs at The Wine About on Instagram and let me know your thoughts. And I hope to see you next week. Bye, guys. <laughs>